Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. With so many of Ukraine's men drawn into the country's war, the labor market is changing fast. Women are starting more businesses and taking more jobs in industry and construction. We visit a mine in eastern Ukraine and speak to some of them. And at the fine age of 26, I'd really like to hope that I haven't reached the peak of my career. Our correspondent has crunched some data to reassure me. First up, though. With all that's going on in Gaza, this war might have fallen off your radar. But it's big, it's bloody, and there's a lot at stake. I'm talking about the war in Sudan. Last month, our correspondent brought us horrifying stories from a refugee camp just across the border in Chad. Mothers told him of their baby boys, held on their backs, being shot in the head. Others of being raped by the militants and of hiding from a death squad conducting mass killings. Observers say that the savagery is being committed by a paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, along with other Arab militias, though the RSF denies attacking civilians. The genocide is just part of a broader war fought since April between the RSF and the Sudanese armed forces. Today, the RSF appears to be winning, though that information is hard to verify with violence that has, until recently, kept international observers away. It's fair to say that the people around the world have been much, much more focused on what's been happening in Israel and Gaza, as well as on the war in Ukraine, than they have been on events in the Sudan in recent weeks and months. Kinley Salmon is The Economist's Africa correspondent. And that's in part because of the sheer difficulty and frankly the danger of getting into Sudan or even of getting into the capital, Khartoum. But finally, some people are managing to get in. There is no principle from any of the UN organizations or others that have been able to go to Khartoum. There's a simple reason. It's impossible to just cross front lines without taking risks. Patrick Youssef, the head of Africa for the International Committee of the Red Cross, recently went there. Because even our own frontline crossings were very risky. Some were shot at. It is very risky. The Economist has been speaking with Patrick about what he saw. And Kinley, what did he see? 
Well, I think it's fair to say above all devastation. Over half of the capital's population of 9 million people has fled. So he really emphasised that what he saw was a city that seemed almost deserted. Khartoum was empty, at least the areas I visited. And I worked there, I lived there. So it's very sad, it's gloomy. We can just hear shots. You see exploded cars in the streets. It looks like a war zone. It feels like a war zone. It is a war zone. And when Patrick visited hospitals in Khartoum in particular, he described just appalling scenes. A hospital that we visited had just no medicines, were just begging us, can you please send assistance? One of the hospitals was simply destroyed. So the hospital staff were just in the backyard with one or two units still intact. Of course, some people, some humanitarians are there trying to help volunteers from the Sudanese Red Crescent as they're providing aid. But most of what would be typical international humanitarian aid just isn't getting in. There's still two to three million in Khartoum. Life goes on in many quarters. But in those areas where people are trapped, I repeat, they are trapped. They cannot go out. They're civilians. They need assistance. So Patrick describes an utterly dire picture of the capital Khartoum, and that chimes, unfortunately, very much with what I was hearing talking with refugees who'd flooded over the border from Darfur in western Sudan into Chad. They also described just horrendous scenes. Now, this conflict isn't new. Like you mentioned, it's been going on for seven months now. Is it anywhere close to a resolution? Unfortunately, the fighting is pretty far from over. There's little sign this war is about to end. But there have been, just in recent weeks, some pretty dramatic shifts in the balance of power. The RSF, this this paramilitary force, has had a series of major victories. The most dramatic of those have been out in Darfur, where they've taken now three of the region's five main cities. The army's been pretty much in retreat there. And so now there's a thought that perhaps actually the RSF is going to surge on and take much more territory and perhaps even the whole country at some point. That's a pretty worrying prospect. I mean, it's the RSF and its Arab militia allies that have been involved in a lot of killing of civilians and of genocide of violence in Darfur. And the fears that that might spiral further is very, very real. Why is the RSF killing so many people? There's really two parts to their fighting and the bloodshed. The first is that they're fighting this war for control of the country against the Sudanese armed forces. And obviously a large number of people are dying in those attacks right through the capital in an attempt to take ground, and that's causing bloodshed on all sides. But they are also seemingly involved in this very, very targeted killing of in particular, black African groups, and and within that, the Masalit tribe. This is happening mostly in Darfur. And that is often targeted much more at civilians. We should note that the RSF denies their involvement. They blame this on rogue elements or on militias, Arab militias that are sometimes allied with them in Darfur. But this is part of a, a much longer history. Back in 2003, there was a rebellion against the the Arab-dominated government in Sudan and in Darfur. Some black African tribes engaged in that rebellion or fought against the government. And the government's response at that time was extremely brutal. And they attacked not just the rebels, but any village with the same ethnicity as the rebels. And at the time, that was declared genocide by America. And so now the fighting that we see today, particularly targeted against the Masalit tribe, in a way is best seen as a continuation of that. 
But there is a real difference this time, and that helps explain why the RSF is advancing both in that broader war and killing so many people, including civilians in Darfur, and that is that they are reportedly getting weapons and support from places like the United Arab Emirates, who are shipping that, it would appear, through neighbouring Chad. And by one count, for example, there were 168 airlifts from the UAE between May and September into Chad. Now, we should say the UAE denies that that's weapons. They say it's humanitarian aid. Kinley, the last time you were on the show, you were reporting from a refugee camp. Give us a sense of how that refugee crisis is looking on the ground. Well, in a word, vast. I flew into the border with Sudan on a, a UN helicopter. And as you come into to Ardre, that town on the border, and as you drive around, it is just miles and miles of very basic refugee settlements. There are barely even camps there because people have arrived so quickly. And the numbers are extraordinary. I mean, in Chad alone, there are some 450,000 new people have arrived since April. But when you look at Sudan as a whole, it's 1.4 million Sudanese that have fled to neighboring countries since the war began. Sudan also now has the world's largest number of internally displaced people. Some 6.3 million have been displaced since April alone. Aid agencies say that more than 6 million people within Sudan are one step away from famine. This is clearly an incredibly complex conflict. Kinney, what can be done? Well, look, no one thinks that it's going to be easy to find a negotiated deal that would suit the mendacious and ultimately very, very self-interested combatants that have been willing to put their own interests above those of ordinary Sudanese to an extraordinary degree. But what's very clear from both talking with Patrick Yusuf of the ICSC, but also from talking with refugees who fled Sudan, is that ordinary Sudanese are desperate for more help and for more engagement from the world to try to end the conflict. I have never seen as many messages of thanks just because we went to the capital. I don't know why, but is it because people are so desperate that they saw this as a huge message of hope? Even in the last week or so, it does seem to be just dawning on some foreign powers how bad this is getting in Sudan. The sheer grimness of the RSF potentially winning this war. And I think that has resulted in a little bit of an uptick in diplomatic engagement just recently. So that foreign pressure can perhaps have results, but there's certainly a long way to go. Kinley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. In a single four-year span in America, more than three million women workers were added to the country's manufacturing sector. Those four years, 1940 to 1944. On the production line, Rosie the Riveter steps in when the draftees step out. As men were sent off to war, in America and in countries around the world, women took up jobs in traditionally male-dominated industries some directly involved in producing the ammunition or other supplies used in the war effort. It's good to see the finished job and to know you've had a hand in it. War reshapes every part of life, and the labor market is no different. It was true in the 1940s, and it's true today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has completely upended Ukraine's labor market. Piotr Zalewski is reporting from Ukraine for The Economist. Now, war and the reality of occupation make collecting good, reliable data impossible. 
But there are some signs, at least, that women are increasingly powering Ukraine's hobbled economy. One of these is the fact that of the 36,000 or so small and medium-sized enterprises registered in Ukraine so far this year, over half, 51%, are run by women. There is also increasing evidence that women are taking up jobs vacated by men who have gone off to fight to get a better picture of how this was happening on the ground and what kind of jobs women were taking up, I headed to a coal mine in eastern Ukraine. And what did you find there? So the coal mine I went to is close to a town called Ternivka, about 100 kilometers east of the Dnipro in the western Donbass, the heart of Ukraine's coal industry. The coal mine employs or employed some 5,000 people, but of those 5,000, 600 are men who have been conscripted. So just over a tenth of the mine's pre-war workforce. To make up for the shortage, the mine has hired some 300 women. The mine had hired women before the war, but all of the women worked above ground on the surface. Today, over 100 women are working underground, and that is to say 480 meters below ground. And what is the chat like below ground? So I went down into the mine and met some women were working notably by clearing coal and by operating a conveyor belt that ferries coal from the depths of the coal mine to the surface. And one of the women I met was named Oksana. And the coal mine asked that we not disclose the last names of its workers. Oksana told me that she took the job at the coal mine because it paid well and offered a good pension. But perhaps more than anything else, the job was a welcome distraction from all of the pain that she had suffered through. Her mother died two years ago of COVID. And a week later, Oksana's husband died from COVID as well. And three months after that, the war began. Oksana, now 49 years old, lived in Bakhmut at the beginning of the war, and she used to work there as a dance instructor. But she had to escape Bakhmut in the spring of last year after the Russians attacked the city. She fled to Kiev, then to Poland, where she worked as a dishwasher and a cook. But she missed Ukraine, and she came back. This spring, she learned that her father had died in Bakhmut, killed by a Russian artillery shell. A few weeks after that, that is to say in April of this year, another bomb destroyed her old home in Bakhmut, killing her oldest son. There was no way to bring him to the morgue, and so her mother-in-law buried him in her garden. Two weeks later, Oksana began to work in the mines. She says the work helps her block out the memories. And she also says that for the time being, she feels as if she has placed her life on hold and will live it later. For now, she just wants to forget everything. 
It seems as if Oksana's case is an unusual one. More generally, did you get a sense from the women who were working in the mine how they viewed their work as a, as a matter of national duty or necessity or a distraction? Well, I mean, Oksana's case is extraordinary. Others say that they began to work in the mines out of a sense of responsibility. Another woman I met was 18 years old. Her name was Anna. And she is training to operate the cages that carry the miners between the levels of the mine. She comes from a family of miners. So for her, this was a more natural career move than for others. She said that underground she feels more useful, but she also feels safer. She says she can't hear the boom of the missiles that occasionally strike the area. There's a little bit of irony there, given how mining is, is known not to be the safest work in the world. But presumably the, the change to the labor market here isn't just in mining. What other kinds of jobs are women taking up? The economy minister we spoke to said construction in particular is expected to pick up as momentum builds toward reconstruction efforts. And women are destined to play a much bigger role in the sector after the war. Demand also is and has been growing in the health sector. Ukraine will probably need an army of doctors and psychologists to look after its war veterans. And many, if not most, of those caregivers will be women. We ought to bear in mind that women are also serving in the army. About 5,000 women are in combat positions. In wars past, a lot of the advancement of women's labor force participation was kind of undone once the, the, the wars passed. Do you have a sense whether that's going to be the situation in Ukraine? It's hard to say. There is a risk that many of these gains will be undone. Ukraine has a long way to go when it comes to gender equality. The participation rate of women in labor force was in decline prior to the invasion. It dipped to below 50%. The gender pay gap has declined to about 18%, but that is still much higher than in the European Union. In parts of the country, attitudes have also been slow to change and gender stereotypes abound. The director of the mine I visited you know, admitted that he was hiring women only because he had to. And he opined that a woman's place is effectively in the home. That the woman should look after the family and the house. When it comes to gender stereotypes, gender roles, there's still some work to do in terms of changing minds. But Oksana says that she has no intention of leaving her job in the mine, although at some point she wants to resume teaching children to dance. She told me that before the war, she thought of the mines as scary places, dark, full of dust. But now that she had experienced war, she wasn't afraid anymore. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. And thanks for having me. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. 
in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. You might get to that point in your career where you sit in front of your computer, stare into the void and think, have I peaked? Does the working world belong to the young, ambitious upstarts, the settled and stable middle-aged workers, or those cruising towards sweet, sweet retirement? It's a question that's captured the curiosity of one of our colleagues. Well, to figure out the answer to the question, at what age do you hit the peak of your career, I decided to look at the people who'd arguably hit the biggest milestone achievement there is. Emily Steinmark is on The Economist's digital team. So I looked for winners of the world's foremost research prize, 200 Nobel laureates. And how did you go about measuring this? Yeah, so there could be a delay between the publication of a laureate's career-defining work, the biggest and most important work that they do, and then getting that recognition from the Nobel Committee. It's very rarely the case that you publish a paper one year and then six months later, there you are with a Nobel Prize. One of the best examples of this is John Goodenough. So he did his groundbreaking work on lithium batteries in the 1980s, but then didn't get the prize until 2019 and the age of 97, which is why in the chemistry community, lots of people sort of ended up calling him John finally good enough. Um, (laughs) uh, And so I looked into at what age do people actually reach that point where they do their most exciting work or the most important or impactful work. And I looked at them by subject, which category they won their prize in. And for this case, it was physics, economics, medicine or physiology, chemistry. And then we also added literature to kind of get a bit of a different, less university research kind of angle on it too. And what did you find? So the answers really changed over time. There was a study done that really looked at the beginning of the 20th century between 1901 and 1950. And what they found was that science laureates who received the prize were an average 39 years old when they published their winning paper. And that was probably to do with some of the younger, bigger scientists at the time who were sort of dragging down their average. But a more recent study published in 2019 by Rasmus Björk of the Technical University of Denmark looked at more recent Nobel laureates in science and economics and found that on average, people are now 44 at the time of their prize-winning work. And is there a difference between the disciplines that you looked at? Yeah, so the thing about physics is a little bit strange. It's still 10 slightly younger, but the differences between the disciplines have lessened over time. So in the beginning of the 20th century, there was a notable difference between physics and a subject like economics or medicine physiology. They tended to be a little bit younger, like 35 or 38 in physics, where medical scientists were 42. And that was kind of attributed to the birth of modern physics that happened around the turn of the 20th century. So you've got like the theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, radiation discoveries. There was just a lot of new stuff happening that meant that younger scientists could really make their mark. But regardless of discipline, future Nobel laureates in science now are the most productive from late youth to early middle age. And why? Why is that the sweet spot? Yeah, it's an interesting question. 
there are different ways of looking at it. Perhaps they're just at that sweet intersection of having like really fresh, exciting ideas and finally the means to pursue them. So if you look at the median age of first year PhD students in the OECD countries, which is a club of mainly rich countries, that age is 29. That's when people really start to get into proper research. But you also need a bit of funding. You need your own lab. So promising young researchers who want to start their own labs often get funding around five years after they graduate. And that sets the sort of lower bar for when you can start doing this work. And I mean, I don't think most people just sort of open the door to their first lab. And then in the first week, they do this amazing science. Science takes a little time. But that sort of sets the the minimum age at which you can start to achieve these things. Okay, but Emily, what about the non-science people? Yeah, I mean, this was exactly why we also looked at literature. Writers sort of depend less on doctoral degrees and research funding grants for labs to do their work. I mean, everything you need is a pen and paper. But surprisingly, they also do their best work as they enter middle age. Some Nobel laureates in literature were chosen for more like a lifetime achievement. So Bob Dylan won at 75. But in the cases where the Nobel Prize Committee single out individual works of that writer, the average age of the authors was around 41. So there's this whole idea that society really loves the idea of young talent, and that's the stereotype that we have of the brightest minds. But actually, it probably should be middle-aged talent that we should celebrate. At least we should also celebrate that. Well, Emily, it's good to know that neither of us have probably reached our peak quite yet. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. I'd like to draw your attention to the latest episode of The Weekend Intelligence, which came out on Saturday. It's all about what'll happen when the Dalai Lama dies. There's a weird battle going on for who gets to say where his soul goes. And for Tibetan Buddhists and all Tibetans, really, it's an existential question. To listen, you'll need to be a subscriber, either to our print or digital editions of The Economist or to Economist Podcasts Plus. Don't forget that today is the last day of our Black Friday sale, though I guess technically the marketing community would now have me call it Cyber Monday. Anyway, half price. Just a couple of bucks or pounds or euros a month to get all of our weekly shows, special series, and the weekend intelligence. You know by now just how much I love a deal, even if it's you that's getting it. Go on, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.